Welcome to the Talk BD Podcast, where we break down the science and strategies to live well with bipolar disorder. Dr. Joanna Jurecki, welcome to Talk BD, our podcast. I am just a little bit excited for our conversation today. Erin, thank you so much for having me. I'm equally as excited. I, I have such tremendous respect for, for you and all the work that you and the Crest BD team have done. Um, so it's an honor and such a pleasure to be a part of this today. And thank you so much for having me. Oh, that makes us mutual fans of each other then. Now, I don't usually do this, but I am going to read your biography just because you're so interesting. And I want to share that with our listeners and our, our viewers today. So, Joanna, you're a psychiatrist and you have interests in mood disorders and ADHD and maternal and perinatal mental health and physician health. And you personally practice meditation and uh, deliver mindfulness-based interventions and psychotherapy as part of this really holistic approach to care. And then on top of that, you're an assistant clinical professor at McMaster University in Ontario in Canada, and your clinical approach has been influenced by your own lived experience of bipolar disorder type 1 and your own journey towards recovery, and also witnessing the recoveries of many of the people that you work with. And through that, you've really recognize that people with bipolar disorder can and do flourish, which is one of the things we're going to be talking about this morning. That's right. Yeah. Where would you like to begin? I'd love to really hear about your journey with bipolar disorder. At what point, at what point would you like to begin that story? Yeah. So I think, well, why don't we start at the beginning? You know, with the perspective that I have now and the knowledge, if I really look back through a fine lens, I think that I, I can see that waves and sort of mood changes really started to happen probably uh, in my adolescence. So like during my teen years in high school, I remember, you know, periods where I had like lots of energy, was very exuberant and times where I was a little bit more withdrawn. And, you know, at that time, I, I didn't recognize it as, you know, there being anything wrong. I was still functioning really well. I always did very well academically. I was sort of, you know, a social butterfly, had a lot of friends and really like a grateful life. And I would say I was fairly happy-go-lucky. I got through university. And, and again, looking back at university, I, I know that I had at least one depressive episode, but again, did not recognize it as such because although I, I, I think I was struggling emotionally, I was still functioning really well. So it wasn't really until... I was in my second year of medical school. So I was 26 years old. And this was just at the tail end of the second year. And of course, medical school is very challenging. So it had been a really grueling, really intensive two years. And, you know, at that time, I had not yet learned how important sleep was, um, you know, nutrition and really how to take care of myself. So I know that it's very likely that I was really kind of burning the candle at both ends for, for at least those two years. But by the end of the second year, I was still, again, functioning. I got through school. I was doing well. I had lots of friends. And between the second and third year of medical school, it's actually a really significant summer because it's before, just after your, your preclinical studies and just before starting clerkship or sort of the clinical rotations, 
And so, you know, I planned a significant trip with my friends to Europe. And as you can imagine, it was a massive shift and change in terms of like the circadian rhythm. Uh, We were definitely, you know, going to bed much later than I was used to. And just the lifestyle, uh, just, you know, a lot of traveling, not enough sleep, not enough rest. And by the last maybe two, three weeks of the trip, all of a sudden I just developed, it was like the rug had been pulled from under my feet. And I just over those weeks, like felt like I had was starting to lose touch with with myself. And I became incredibly anxious and usually a very social person. All of a sudden, I started to almost freeze around other people, even my friends. And I, I developed these thoughts, these ruminations about that I didn't know what to say, that I didn't have anything to contribute. And nothing that I had ever ever experienced before. I developed really severe insomnia. I remember trying, like, staring up at the ceiling and trying to sleep while every like, my friends were, you know, sleeping soundly. And uh, and then I was I started becoming afraid even to leave our apartment. Um, so I would tell my friends to go and have a good time without me. And I would I just sat there, really anxious and afraid and feeling really confused and. I just remember my thoughts being so slowed, like just my cognitive functioning really was was obliterated. And that was that happened for a few weeks. And then we we boarded the plane. I felt like I was a completely different person returning home. And, you know, just like most 20 something year olds, I kind of still felt invincible. And I thought, I'll just shake this off. I'll get home. I'll be back to normal. I'll return to school. And I tried to go to school. I, I attended the the first couple of days of school. And again, severe insomnia. I showed up to class just absolutely exhausted and unable to think, like really just not able to process anything that the professor was saying. And and for me at that time, it was just an absolute, like everything just, it just seemed like my world was ending in that moment, right? Because now I was dealing with, grappling with the idea that, oh my goodness, like I have a mental health condition and really feeling the stigma of that. And this was 2008. So at that time, no one was discussing physician mental health, right? So I thought that to have a mental health condition and to be a physician are is an oxymoron that, that you know, mm-hmm. the, the end of my career as I knew it. Wow. And so I really, I had to move back in with my parents. I spent several months like just in my, in my room barely being able to get out of bed. I really had the lead in paralysis, like barely able to move. I had to be prompted. Like my mom, thankfully, was was there to kind of make sure I got out of bed, you know, showered, went outside for walks. But even those very minor tasks were felt insurmountable. And I remember during those months, I, I you know, really spiraled into very deep and dark depression very, very significant and and probably psychotic depression because I developed these really strong beliefs that I was worthless, that things were hopeless, but to the point where it was just, I think, you know, so strong that it was, it was delusional, you know, sitting in the room and just feeling like I was on the, in the bottom of this deep, dark well that had no, like, I just could not see the light and that it, things were hopeless, that I was never going to get better. And this very strong voice in my head really convincing me that I was not a good person, that I was worthless, that I shouldn't be here, that I'm a burden on others. And of course, with that comes, you know, thoughts of, you know, should I even be here? And 
So really, really painful few months. So that was the fall. And then come December, January, I started to feel like myself, slowly started to come back to myself. And by about January, I was feeling pretty good. And then by March, uh, April, I was feeling really good, best I've ever felt, you know, on top of the world, unstoppable. And of course, you can see where this is going. And so, and I was just at this point thought that I had discovered like the secret to to happiness. And I I was going to have this reality show called Life is Beautiful. And I was going to teach the entire world how beautiful life can be and and how to, you know, relish and how to, how to be, how to be happy. Um, and in my mind, like it just continued to get more and more grandiose where I was going to, you know, be on Oprah. I was going to be friends with Will Smith. Like it was, it would be, it, I, I was, I was, it got quite, big, it got big, it got <laughs> very big. So my sense of self got very, became very expanded. My sense of purpose, I felt connected, connected to the world, really wanting to help people struggling with mental health issues and and really feeling like there was a deep purpose for me. And so the mania at that time went from this really happy, expansive feeling connected to it it really actually evolved by the end of April into like a very scary and paranoid state. Mm -hmm. So near the end, I recall that I started to develop these, you know, paranoid delusions that I had actually figured out this, I, I guess it was almost like, I knew the secret to life or this Da Vinci, like mm-hmm. akin to the Da Vinci code. And I thought that there were people who wanted to protect me and that there were others that were going to come after this code. And so I, I remember one night driving in my car and actually having, you know, delusions of reference and following the, the street signs, thinking that they were directing me where to go. And I ended up... Joanna, up- what's a delusion of reference? Oh, thank, thank you for thank you for asking. I've got to take my psychiatrist hat off here. So essentially, I thought, I believed that certain things in my environment, like, for example, a one-way street sign had purposely been put there for me and was intended to communicate a special meaning for me, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, as if the city of Toronto is going to (laughs) modify their signage for one special individual. Well, you're pretty special. Maybe not that special. Well, thank you. Yes, yes. I don't think I've quite (laughs) reached that status. (laughs) So... Yeah. And so, uh, you know, and, and, and when you're in that state, it's real, like it really feels real. Right. And it was, and it was almost, it was exciting and, and, and terrifying at the same time. And it culminated in me driving myself to the Pierce, uh, Toronto Pearson airport because I had this belief that, uh, there was going to be a private plane waiting for me with my entourage or supporters. And so I, I just showed up to the check-in desk with no passport of course, confused looks on uh, people's faces. And uh, I went from counter to counter. Everyone said, "We're so- I'm sorry, I can't help you. You don't have your passport. We have no record. And that really put me into a state of quite significant distress. I ended up then going to the emergency phones to just call for help because I was, I think, confused and again, afraid. And uh, And then the police ended up coming to, because of course they had heard that there was you know, a, a distressed individual wandering the airport and uh, they came and, and put me in, in handcuffs and actually took me to the hospital via police car. So that was uh, definitely a very 
challenge, like very difficult and frightening moment because, of course, the police were trying to help and they knew that I'm suffering with a mental health condition. But in my mind, I thought that they were people who were disguised as police officers who wanted to extract this code from me. So I was really fighting getting into that police car and really, in my mind at that point, fighting for my life. Uh, And then so I woke up the next day, you know, in a hospital gown, in the hospital, no shoes, like hospital slippers. And just in that moment, it was like, like my reality had been blown to smithereens, right? So what, 20, 27, 28 at this point? Yeah. So I was 27 at this point, right? And going from like, you know, just a few days prior, this really expansive state and feeling on top of the world, like I had this purpose to all of a sudden waking up and like, this is a very different reality. And now recognizing that everything I had been thinking and believing and was true and real was not right. And just kind of grappling with the reality that I was now hospitalized and and it was explained to me that I had experienced a severe manic episode with psych- with psychosis and uh, that I was now in hospital. So it was definitely a very sobering moment in my life, and that's that's how I came to to get the, the my my first diagnosis. Goodness, that's a big yeah. a big story. How did your treatment play out after that? What were the next next steps? How long did that hospitalization period last? So I was. Uh, fortunate at the time that uh, I was connected to a psychiatrist and a mood disorder specialist who had been treating me as an outpatient. And also I had a very supportive family. My mom came to hospital. uh, And so I was released actually after only a 24-hour admission because I had my outpatient psychiatrist that had agreed to, to manage me as an outpatient. And at that point, I really, there was you know, I, I, I think I had enough insight to, to really sort of accept that this was the diagnosis and that I needed this treatment. And so for those reasons, they, they, they discharged me. On different treatments, right? So a mood, yeah. what, a mood stabilizer, antipsychotic medication. Yes. So at that point, I was started on an atypical antipsychotic, uh, olanzapine, mm-hmm. uh, which you know, was very effective in terms of treating the psychosis and treating the mania. Uh, and of course, as as I'm sure, you know, you're you're aware that also left me quite sedated uh, and feeling, you know, feeling side effects like cognitive side effects as well. So it was certainly, again, like a significant change, right, in my state in a very short period of time. And so this is where, you know, so this is where kind of the, the diagnosis came to light. And this is really where now rebuilding and sort of putting the pieces back together started for me, right? So I think as much as the acute episodes are really challenging, of course, the depression is painful, the mania can be dangerous. I think one of the most challenging stages of this illness is really the aftermath, mm-hmm. the aftermath of a significant episodes because that is where you're now you're you're I, I was sitting there and my entire life had it felt like my entire life had been blown to smithereens my identity was just felt shattered because I was it was it was so confusing because I, I thought like who am I right like am I this huge expansive person am I am I this person that was you know 
crying and, you know, in fetal position in, in, in my room last year or am I somewhere in between? Like where? Where is the me? Where, where is, is me and all of that? Yeah. Exactly. Where is me? Where is like the essence of who I actually am? And then, you know, you're grappling with like, what is reality? Like, and, and can I trust myself to actually judge what reality is? Right. So you're really, you're trying to put the puzzle pieces back together again. And, and also you're dealing with the stigma and then you're dealing with relationships and, you know, what did I say? What did I do during my manic episode? I mean, I, you know, I said some pretty far out things and I was just, so there's embarrassment, there's shame, there's, there's Mm -hmm. guilt for hurting others. Right. So, so it was a lot, but I was very fortunate. I had a wonderful psychiatrist who had a very, you know, supportive, really humanistic approach. And I think during that time, what was really critical for me and that started to give me hope is that he really, when he delivered the diagnosis to me, he said, yes, this is a very, it, it can be a significant condition. And of course, it's a chronic condition. You will have this vulnerability in the long term. Um, however, he presented me with the, the hope that there's actually your diagnosis does not equate to your prognosis, that there's actually a lot of possibility here in terms of being able to live this full life. And akin to, you know, the, the name of bipolar disorder, he said, we we almost have bipolar outcomes with this condition as well, that um, the message that I received was that, you know, if I can accept this diagnosis, if I can be, you know, work with him in terms of finding the right medication combination and also do learning how to take care of myself so that I can support my health and well-being. He encouraged me that, you know, there are people who live with this condition who are successful, who are professionals, who are, you know, in in all walks of life, who are living well and full and meaningful lives. So I think that was really pivotal for me because the way that my mind works, at least, I don't do well with thinking about what I don't want or or I, I didn't want to feel like I was running away from something or sort of like running away from the bipolar condition, right? So I think the way that it was communicated to me gave me this vision or this idea or this image in my mind of like a healthy self, this healthy, full mm-hmm. self that's living this meaningful life. And for myself, that has been so critical in my recovery, right? Because I've never felt like I'm running away from or trying to fight the condition I'm I've I, what I've chosen to sort of focus my sights on is okay I I'm going to create this healthy self and what do I need to learn what do I need to do to get there so I was sort of where, off. Where, yeah. where does your bipolar sort of fit now in terms of your identity Joanna and and this idea of healthy self is it a part of you or how how do you put those pieces together in your mind at this point Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely a part of me because it really informs how I live. Um, because what I what I learned is that in order to be that healthy self, I have to be very conscientious of the fact that I do have this vulnerability. And I've had to learn that there are things that I I really need to do. So for example, you know, honoring the fact that a circadian rhythm, right? And having a strong sleep routine you know, for me, also physical activity and regular exercise, having other self-care practices like meditation and, you know, other stress reduction practices. So it's it's something that is 
you know, I'm aware of every day be- and, and it informs the way that I live. Um, but it's also something that, you know, because I, this 2008, I mean, it, this has been 15 years now, because I, over the years, have found through my journey that as I learn more about myself and the condition and how to stay well, and I have now come out on the other end and have, you know, recovered and have, was able to finish school, I was able to finish residency, become a psychiatrist, you know, get married, start a family. So I can also see that my condition does not define the whole of me, right? It's part of who I am. It's, I know that the the vulnerability is there, but it's not, it doesn't define my entire life or who I am. And in fact, I think it's really informed and deepened. It's taught me so much about myself because in those aftermath moments where you've got this shattered identity and like shattered sense of reality, you have to start to rebuild. And it's really forced me to have to rebuild my life in a way that is very intentional. Hmm. Uh, And I don't know that I would have had that opportunity had I not had gone through the suffering that I did. Right. I I mean, Hmm. I don't, I don't wish to go back there (laughs) and I don't wish it on upon anyone. And and that's why part of why I'm here today, because I don't want other people to suffer as much as I did. But the silver lining of the suffering is that, you know, it does leave you in the end with a lot of lessons and I think, you know, strength and resilience and, um, yeah, learning a lot about yourself. And uh, it's interesting the way you worded that or some of the words you used in relation to bipolar disorder, opportunities, silver lining, almost, you know, the gifts or the legacy or the positive attributes that the condition might, might confer for people. Absolutely. I know that because of what I have gone through, I have an understanding, an empathy, a compassion for others uh, that I otherwise, I, I know I would not be as strong. It has definitely informed, of course, the choice of my work, the work that I do. And that has brought me so much meaning, right? Like, And it actually allows me to make meaning out of my experience and out of my suffering, the fact that I can now use that to help others. And Were you yeah. considering psychiatry as a speciality when you were a med student or was that, how did that play out? Yeah. So great question. So actually when I started medical school, I want, I, I thought that I would uh, become a family doctor. Mm-hmm. So I was in the interest group for family medicine and I, you know, I was always really fascinated with mental health. I, my undergraduate uh, degree was in biology and psychology, uh, but yeah, I, I really wanted to do family medicine. And then uh, after this experience, it was actually my own psychiatrist who said to me during one of our follow-up sessions, he said, you know, have you ever considered psychiatry? And at the time, I didn't yet. I was really early in my recovery. Uh, I don't know that I had the confidence yet. And, and I, I think I even doubted, you know, can I finish school? Like when I returned, it took me a good year still. Like it was, it was still a challenging ride. So it really took me until maybe the end of my third year of medical school to really feel that, you know what, I belong here and I do have something to offer. And that's something that again, the psychiatrist that I was working with really helped me to to see that, you know, maybe my experience can actually serve as an asset or as a gift um, that can that can help to to serve others. Yeah. So that's 
And then when I started to do psychiatry rotations in my final year, that was that was it. I was sold. I couldn't I couldn't imagine anything else. I just yeah, I, I never looked back. How how disclosed were you at that point with your bipolar disorder and your profession? So again, this was 2009 when I returned. So thankfully, things have changed for the positive in that we're much more open about it today. Um, but at that time, I think that it was very, it, I did not feel as safe to disclose more openly. I did have an advisor that knew. And over time, as I became close to some of my peers, the ones that I really felt close to and, and safe with, I did disclose to them. And I will say that, and of course, over the years, I have disclosed in more, <laughs> you know, larger settings, bigger and ways, big, yeah. bigger audiences. <laughs> um, and I will say this, that uh, I, I, I was very fortunate in that when I did disclose, I found that the response was always, you know, positive, supportive. I was always met with compassion and mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm really grateful for that. I'm so interested to hear about uh, your reflections on whether or how living with bipolar disorder personally impacts you as a clinician and the space in between you as a clinician and you as somebody with uh, lived experience. I mean, do you work with people with bipolar disorder a lot clinically? Is that your speciality, one of your speciality areas? Yes, absolutely. Yes, I I do. So I, I don't only see uh, individuals with bipolar disorder, but it's certainly, you know, I think it, it, it's it's a significant portion of my practice, and I I I enjoy it. <laughs> I really enjoy you know working with individuals with with bipolar condition, and of course, I I, I do think that it, my own lived experience has really informed my care in general for for individuals with bipolar condition and otherwise, right? I think that training, of course, can prepare you significantly. Um, but having that lived experience, I think it allows, I, I think I've come to understand how important, first of all, that like instilling hope in my patients, right? First, first and foremost. And Which is the gift that you had when you first got diagnosed. And I could hear exactly. in your story how powerful that was in terms of shaping your own journey towards recovery and the fact that you can instill that now and carry that legacy forward. That's a gift in itself. Uh, absolutely. And and that's the understanding how critical that was, how critical that piece is. I make sure that I give that to everyone that I, that I, that I, you know, am, am, am helping in their recovery journey. Because when you're in that vulnerable state, to hear that from your physician that there is hope, I am here with you, and you're going to get through this, it's very powerful when you feel broken and stigmatized and afraid and uncertain because there's so much uncertainty, especially around, you know, for a young person with first episode and they're grappling with all these questions. And especially because historically, sometimes the messaging around the prognosis has not been all that hopeful, right? So I make sure to really communicate to the people that I'm working with that the old messaging is outdated. And that's absolutely, you know, it's not that old, Joanna, you know, yeah. I think maybe a little bit more in clinical settings. But still, if you go to Google, yeah. you Google bipolar disorder, 
you know, you will hear that it's uh, dangerous, lethal, associated with neurocognitive problems, yes. um, unemployment, marriage loss, and on and on. Um, it's very easy to find the doom and gloom statistics. And we're not here to sort of, you know, play down the potential yes. of fallacy or the problems that can come with bipolar disorder, but the countering of messaging around that is not that strong, at least online. And so, and that's often the first place people go to find out information about. Yes, yes, exactly. And that, and, 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 you know, I don't want to downplay, you know, the devastating consequences that can be a result of living with the condition. And however, I do think that knowing that the possibility for a good outcome is, is there will actually impact the prognosis, right? I think that that empowers people. So the other, the other thing that I make, that I, I think comes also really strongly from my lived experience is I, I really am very intentional about empowering the people that I work with to really become active participants in their own care. Because also, you know, historically, People would go to their physician, you know, and it was sort of a very passive, they were very passive recipients, recipients of, a, of, of a prescription. And okay, see you later, hope for the best, right? Uh -huh. Cross your fingers. Whereas, whereas we know that that's not the case that um, I tell everyone that I work with, like, you are the most important person in your recovery. Yes, I'm an expert. I've got some expertise. I can provide recommendations. I'm here for guidance, support. I will be in your corner. We're going to work as a team. You're not alone. However, you are the most important person because, you know, even if I see someone once a week, it's still, you know, I'm not with them all the time. And so I think empowering people to know that they can make, they can have a, play a significant role in, in their health and, and then teaching them how, right? Like, what are the steps? Like, when I started this journey, I had no idea that sleep mattered, right? Like, Versus now it's like, oh my goodness, right? Like try to get me off my sleep routine. I tell everybody, like I, I turn into a pumpkin at 9 p.m. So don't <laughs> don't bother calling me. And, uh, you know, an exercise. I didn't, I, I remember studying when I was in university and my dad calling me and saying, you know, are you studying? You should be exercising. I was like, dad, I don't have time for exercise. I don't have time for that. I'm in medical school, <laughs> don't you know? And, you know, so these things that you know, nutrition, like social connection, like pe not people are not aware, right? And and so just learning the connections between our lifestyle or, you know, these simple interventions sometimes, simple changes that we can make in our lives that can really support our our, our health and well-being. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So that's the patient, client, front-centered bit of it. What about clinicians? If you could well, you are speaking to clinicians today through this podcast and people with lived experience of bipolar disorder. What are some of the common misunderstandings or things that we could do better clinically, at, you know, at a large level with uh, when we're working with people with bipolar disorder from your perspective? You talked about the messaging for recovery. Are there any yeah. other pieces that yeah. we can advance in? I think the messaging for recovery is obviously a huge piece. And I think that comes from also us believing and understanding that there are hopeful outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. And the other piece I think too is being very sensitive. So one, so not only focusing on the symptomatology and treating the symptoms and because I I would often see in my training that there would be such a strong focus on just symptom management, right? Mm -hmm. And then, oh, the symptoms have increased. We're going to tweak the medications. 
and perhaps not as much focus on the quality of life or on the, you know, the, the, the positive mental health continuum. Because yes, individuals that have this condition, there are risk factors, they're, they're dealing with symptoms, but also we have to think about what are their levels of positive mental health or flourishing? What is their quality of life? What are the resources that they have internally? What are their strengths? What are, what are their supports? So kind of galvanizing their resources and helping them to build a quality of life and a functioning. So I, I really look at how is this person functioning? Do they have a sense of purpose in their life? Because I know that if we don't take care of that, the symptom management is going to be much more challenging, right? So I think really focusing on quality of life measures, really focusing on functioning, and again, focusing on that, on that empowerment. The other thing too is I would say I'm very sensitive to people's concerns about side effects. You know, if, if I'm working with someone and they are concerned about sedation, cognitive blunting, if I know that their, the, their medication is really impairing that quality of life, I take that very seriously and I act very quickly because that is a way that we can lose people. Because, and, and I know the suffering that, that comes as a result of medication side effects. And I think sometimes, you know, for individuals who have not lived that, it's hard to really appreciate just how significantly that can impact someone's quality of life. So that's something that I'm really trying to be thoughtful about. And I would encourage clinicians to really think, you know, and to, to consider someone's, if I have a student who, you know, where I know that their cognition is critical, then I am very careful to select a medication that, yes, it's going to keep them well and stable, but also it's going to help them to still thrive and think. And, 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 and you know, I'm very careful. That, that we select the right fit for that individual. One of the examples I use a lot when I'm working with clinicians in education events is of somebody I worked with who was a violinist and the, one of the side effects of the medication they were having was hand tremor. And right. without her ability to play the violin, which was actually her career as well, right. yes. it was an untenable side effect for her. Um, and that, speaking to that relationship between side effects and what you're prioritizing in your quality of life, and yeah. recognizing, as you said, that symptoms and quality of life, are, there's a relationship certainly between the two, but they're not synonymous. Um, yeah. And just recognizing that you can flourish in some areas, even if you're experiencing symptoms. And that there's this kind of give and take and this nuancing that we need to uh, pay attention to clinically and really talking to people about what do you care about the most? What are the outcomes for your treatment that you're prioritizing and that we need to work to go towards? And without that conversation at the beginning, our goalposts may not be in the same place as the people that we're working with and supporting. Absolutely. And then the people that we're working with and supporting are not, you know, like this is, this is a team. And what I always try to explore very early on, um, you know, just to pick up on what you just emphasized is what, what does the person that I'm working with, what is important to them, mm -hmm. right? Like what are their goals as you mm -hmm. stated? And, you know, we may not agree on that, right? And so really early on, I have to say, like, what do you care about, right? Like, and 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 this comes up even if there's a lack of insight or if people are, you know, hesitant, let's say, about treatment or accepting the diagnosis, like really trying to understand why, right? Like why? Instead of, you know, judging or getting frustrated, it's like, you know, there's a reason, right? Why this individual 
maybe, you know, maybe bipolar condition runs in their family and they're resisting the diagnosis because they don't want to, they don't, in their mind, maybe they're like, well, I don't want to be like my, you know, so-and-so, right? Or, or they have that really frightening belief about what the prognosis can be. So really exploring if someone is not compliant or maybe lacks insight, what are the reasons? And is there anything that I can do to educate them? Or, you know, are there, where can we align together, you know, to, to, to work, to, to, to come up with a treatment plan that they feel safe and comfortable with? And also to, to leave the door open for them to come back if they do decide to discontinue medications and experiment, which is everybody's right with, do I have this diagnosis? Do I need to take this medication for life? These are huge questions. But clinically, when people make those decisions and sometimes leave, you know, your, your therapeutic environment, if you can leave a door open for them to come back and to embrace their experiences and then maybe move forward in a different or tailored direction. Especially when you're working with younger folks who have really, you know, testing often. Yes. Diagnosis is theirs, you know? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, and you can understand, right? And, and, right. And you can understand in particular. Yeah, I can understand that, right? And especially if you think about the inter episode functioning can be excellent. So, especially if they don't have a full, you know, like sometimes recollection around details when someone is particularly manic, like they can be fuzzy. So, it's it's if you're when, once they recover and they're doing great and they're thriving, they're like, is this really a thing? Yeah. <laughs> Are the doctors right? But yeah, so we have to give people that opportunity to really feel 100 percent convinced I'm ready to accept this. This is my reality. And now I'm ready to work with you. Right. Because I'm not forcing anyone. And I tell everybody, like, I'm here to support you. But like you are the driver. Right. Like you're in the driver's seat. But I'm here to f- support and guide. So yeah, absolutely. Giving, having that compassion and understanding to, to understand that this is part of it. It takes sometimes a few episodes before people really recognize, okay, this is a pattern. <laughs> this wasn't a one-off, right? So given all the incredible experience you have uh, clinically and personally on your journey, let's uh, send you back in time and let's take you back to that point where you know, the point that really stands out for me was when you were describing yourself in that agitated state of depression with some really nasty psychotic thinking going on that was, you know, a risk to you at that point in terms of you're not worth it. You might as well die. You know, go back to that, that Joanna and stand by her side. What would you, what would you say to her at this point, knowing what you know now? And thank you, Erin. That's a really beautiful question. And I've thought about this a lot, actually, over the years, because uh, I think she, I I wish she had someone to come at that point and to say, you know, I promise you, I know that it feels so hopeless right now, but I promise you this is going to get better. I promise you, you are going to get on the other side of this and have a beautiful, magnificent life. And the other thing I would say to her is do not listen to what that internal voice is telling you. It's lying. The, the condition is lying to you. Listen to your friends. Listen to your family who are calling you every day and telling you how much they love you and telling you that you are worth it. You are worth it. They are telling the truth. The condition right now is lying. You cannot listen to your mind in this state. And then the other thing I would say, because, you know, recovery and getting better, like it really is slow, gradual process. So I would say to her, you know, if you can't fly, 
run. If you can't run, walk. If you can't walk, crawl. Whatever you do, just take one small, tiny step in the right direction every day. And I promise you, you're going to get there. Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. Makes me feel emotional hearing you, you say that. And I love your metaphor of the tiny steps, you know, even if it's just a step out of bed or to the to the side of your bed that day. But you, it sounds to me like you didn't take you a lot of the steps that you took, you took with other people and that people, family members, your your mother, your parents supported you through that. I, w- I wonder too, if you could message, if you could talk to, well, you can talk to some of them. What would you like to say to them now, those people that took those steps along your side during your journey? Oh, I, I have been so really blessed and I'm so grateful because I, you know, my family and my friends, really, I had such incredible support and I could not have done it without, without their support. And so if I can, if I can take some moments to thank individuals that I would would, love to hear. So I mean, first and foremost, especially around my first episode and, and, you know, throughout my journey, my mother, <laughs> of course, you know, there's nothing like the unconditional love of, of, of a mother. And she was just there for me in every moment and uh, everything from the practical things like when I was severely depressed and I couldn't do, you know, move out of my apartment or, you know, needed prompting to get out of bed to just that unconditional love that she gave me that gave me that belief to keep going. It was also very protective, right? In those dark moments, because I knew like I, I cannot ever hurt her or or my family. So I'm so grateful for her. She's been my, you know, biggest cheerleader and champion. And I had had some really good friends that I've had since childhood. And they were all really supportive and really stood by me. They never made me feel yeah, they 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 just they 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 accepted me regardless of the state that I was in and I will mention two of them in particular who during those really dark times called me every single day and as much as that internal voice was saying terrible things to me they were on the other side of that saying we love you this is who you are you are a good person you are worthy we love you you're going to get better so Megan and Michelle mm-hmm. And uh, I, I really, I'm so great. I will be eternally grateful to them because they really helped me to win over that that voice. And then more recently, my husband, uh, we've been married now 10 years, just celebrated our 10 year anniversary. And he has just been an amazing, incredible support. Um, I'm so grateful for him. And I, maybe I'll share a short anecdote. When we first met and I first disclosed my diagnosis to him, and I was a little bit nervous. And I said, you know, like, this is because it's getting serious. I wanted to share this with you. And I, after disclosing, I said to him, you know what? So you take a couple of weeks to think about it. Just give me a call when you're ready. And in my head, I was thinking he's going to say, no, thank you. Nice. No. And, and he, and I just remember his, like, he just, his eyes widened and he said, you know what? I already had tremendous respect for you, but after you after sharing this, I now respect you even more that you have gone through all of this and, you know, are still the person that you are, are the person that you are today. So I think having that, again, unconditional acceptance and respect for him and never having felt judged or stigmatized. And then over the years, also, because since our, you know, during our married life, there have been times where I was dealing with some 
depressive symptoms. And he really had to step in and take care of the finances and the practical day-to-day things. Some At one point for a few weeks, he really had to kind of take the reins with parenting to help me out. And so he's always been there for me for to support that. And I will say he is, you know, he has, he's been my mirror. Like he has provided me with so much helpful, constructive, amazing feedback that has really helped me to grow as an individual and is, has been a huge cheerleader and reason that I'm doing, that I'm here today and, and do the work that I do. So I'm re- so, so grateful to him. Like at that first date when you disclosed that what would have been running through the back of your mind was, oh, this one could be a keeper. Yeah. <laughs> and 10 years later, yeah. And 10 years later, it, it was uh, it was definitely the right choice. I'm very, very happy. I was I was correct in my judgment. And and you know, and speak and and at that time, actually, once I told him and when he decided, okay, this one's a keeper, you know, he talked to his family. So I also wanted to, you know, really express gratitude to my mother-in-law, who mm. I just think the world of. And when he came to her to tell her. This is the person that I want to be with. And this is he he wanted to for her to know. And she said, you know, this you love her. We love her. And if you if this is something that you're like, you have to be all in no matter what happens, you have to be there for her. And I just think for a mother to support that is just incredible. Right. So I've always been really grateful to her for that. And just she's been such a supporter of and such a champion of mine over the years and someone who really when I have struggled, has always come to me and said, I see what you're going through. I can see that this is hard. I see you. Yeah, Mm -hmm. to have that, I see you. And last but not least, my kids. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they're they're my, you know, I'm sorry, I'm getting... Yeah, just, just for being my joy and my purpose and yeah, such strong motivation to to be the best version and the healthiest version of myself for them. Oh, Joanna, you know, part of me listens to that and thinks, you know, aren't you lucky to have those people in your life? But the other part of me thinks that believes and knows that, you know, you you're an incredible person with I so admire your spirit and your energy and what you bring into your clinical work and the and the gift that you've given to us today to 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 share this story we only just scraped the surface <laughs> uh, i would love i would love to have you back again to talk about the family piece more yeah. and that cuz you know the you know the support and the challenges and yeah. being a mother being a parent so let, let's do that in another in another absolutely i would love to I would love to continue these conversations. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joanna. It was just a wonderful way to to start my day. Take care. You too. Thank you so much, Erin.